it is critically important that you have a precise knowledge of the words that you read. A precise knowledge of the words that you read. I learned this the hard way myself when I was, oh, probably around 12 years old or so. I was certainly aware at the time of the concept of profanity. I was aware that the uh, hell was a real place, a serious topic. It was not to be trivialized or used in a profane manner. And yet I read uh, a word in a book that I had never come across before that was just one word. And I didn't know anything of the kind. It did include the word uh, hell in it, but I didn't think of it as being anything in relationship to that word. It just struck me as some new word that I had not come across before. And I learned the importance of having a precise knowledge of the words that I read when I was sitting next to my father at a baseball game and something particularly exciting happened. And I leaned over to him and said, Mia, Papa, this is a bleep of a game. Uh, you can imagine, uh, I was bleeping out the word, I was using quite the profanity, and you can imagine how my dear father reacted. It was a, quite a surprise look on his face as he wondered, Peter, where uh, did you come across that word? I did not realize it was a profanity because it was in one word. I did not quite understand. I did not have a precise knowledge of the words that I was reading, and it came back to bite me. Now, I start here because... It is important in the subject we are attending to tonight to have a precise knowledge of the words that are being used. In fact, this is exceptionally important when it comes to Scripture. Do not just sit content, if you want to be a student of the Bible, with a general knowledge of the words that are in your Bible. Dig in until you have a specific knowledge of the words that are used. Now, let me give you an example. Here in John chapter 16, Jesus is nearing the end of the last message he gave to his disciples before his death. It is the upper room discourse. Jesus is teaching them of the spirit that would be coming after he leaves, this comforter. He is encouraging them with what will come after this immediate, depressing, sad event that was about to occur of his arrest and subsequent crucifixion. He was giving them deep truths that only later they would understand. And here in this passage in John 16, he gives this fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit when he says that I tell you the truth, verse 7, it is expedient, it is better for you that I go away. You can imagine the shock that the disciples had. Jesus was, of course, their everything. They left all and followed him. They were learning from him. He was their source of everything. And now he is saying, it is better for you that I go away. And he explains it, for if I go not away, the comforter, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. What was the simple point he's making? The church is better served by Jesus Christ ministering to us in the form of the Holy Spirit than, he, than it would be if Jesus bodily were ministering to us. 
Because the Holy Spirit can minister, of course, everywhere in the same place. He is not constrained by one body, by one person in one geographic location, in one point of time. The Holy Spirit, it truly is better that Jesus would go up so that the Holy Spirit would come and work across the world in each one of us. Now, notice what he says in verse 8. And when he is come, the comforter is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, I want to ask you tonight, do you have a precise knowledge of what that word reprove means? Because if you don't, you won't understand this passage. And even more importantly, you won't understand the true ministry of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the gospel and to our evangelism when it comes to the gospel. Now, I want you to picture in your mind for a moment What do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit reproving someone? What picture comes into your mind? How do you identify that word? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to reprove someone? Here's how I would commonly think of reproving someone. It's like the teacher who looks across the desk at the student who has done wrong even if that's the homeschool kitchen table, whichever one that is, and saying, that was wrong, naughty. It's like someone wagging their finger at someone or or going like this and saying, that was wrong. If we do that, if we have this idea of reproving as as a kind of just wagging your finger, just kind of giving someone a rebuke, We're not truly understanding the concept, I think, that this is conveying. We would get an idea of this if we went back to an old dictionary. In fact, you can publicly access Webster's 1828 Dictionary online. And just as a matter of curiosity, I went up and looked this word up, reprove. What does it mean to reprove in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary? And one of the definitions was this, to convince of a fault or to make it manifest, to convince of a fault, or to make it manifest, to make it apparent. And we would have a more precise idea of this word that's translated reprove if we understood how else it's used in the scripture. One scholar has told us that it's used about 17 or 18 times in our New Testament. And in each case, this word is used to describe someone exposing, telling someone, speaking verbally to someone about their wrongdoing. And it has the concept, and this is where I really want to get our precise knowledge of this word. It has the concept, or could be used, of a prosecutor prosecuting someone who is guilty. Now, what does a prosecutor do? Some of us were introduced in a greater way to that concept if perhaps you watched the Derek Chauvin trial for the, for the killing of George Floyd. It was broadcast over all, all, it was publicized, video clips appearing all over online. One of the prosecutors, a special prosecutor, is doing it on a pro bono basis, was a man named Jerry Blackwell. I know Jerry Blackwell. I've worked with him. We've sat in the same conference room on the same side of a case. He's a tremendous lawyer. And not surprisingly, he did a very skillful job of prosecution in that case. What does a prosecutor do? A prosecutor has a defendant 
in the, in the box, right? In the defendant's box, at the table. And the prosecutor goes to a jury and he convinces the entire courtroom of the guilt of that, of that defendant. And that may lead the defendant to say, I'm guilty. And it may lead the defendant to say, no, I'm not guilty and contest it. But nonetheless, the prosecutor's job is to make manifest, to make clear to the defendant and to the courtroom the guilt of the person who is sitting at the defendant's table. Now, if you and I were to have that picture, that precise knowledge of what Jesus is saying here when he says that the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, now we're getting somewhere. Now I think we are in a better place to understand what exactly Jesus means and what the Spirit's work is Today. The title of the message tonight is The Gospel, A Divine Prosecutor. Two weeks ago, we looked at the gospel being a divine plan that was hatched before the foundation of the world, that dates back to when our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, in which we were foreknown, in which we were predestined, in which we were called and justified with an eternal destination ahead of time to be holy and without blame before him in love. Last week, we looked at the gospel as a matter of human responsibility, that God has brought down the gospel to the ground floor. He has put it at the very lowest shelf. It is in our mouth and it is in our heart. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That the divine plan is not in contradiction to human responsibility, but that indeed God's heart is that all are saved and all come to repentance. And we need not try to understand and figure out every detail of how these two things come together. We simply preach both of them as true and we trust God to draw people to himself. This week, the gospel, a divine prosecutor in keeping with the divine plan of salvation and bringing to light human responsibility and holding the world accountable ultimately for its rejection of Jesus Christ. Three aspects that I want to talk about in this divine prosecutor tonight. First of all, the elements of this prosecution, the elements of this prosecution. Will you notice with me again in John chapter 16? Let's make sure again our understanding of these verses are precise. Notice verse 8. And when he is come, when who is come? The Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that the Spirit was not operating in the world before he came. He's, of course, referring to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in this way of power as he was prophesying in a new kind of ministry in and through his body, the church. When he is come, he will reprove, prosecute, convict, convince, you could use each of those words, frankly, almost interchangeably. The world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Notice who he is convicting, who he is prosecuting. He is prosecuting the world. Now that leads me to believe that the first thing that Jesus has in mind here is not an internal conviction. Like you and I might say, I went to a, a service and the preaching convicted me. 
What do you mean when you say that? You're saying it hit me. It cut me right to my heart. I was convicted internally. I don't think that's the first thing that Jesus means here. What I believe, when, again, this idea of a divine prosecutor is that he will be prosecuting the entire world in light of what is public about Jesus, in what is open and visible and manifest. In other words, he will be using this prosecution across, if you will, everything. It is a public prosecution, but we should also recognize that it will have a personal effect. So even while I think that Jesus is talking primarily about this public nature, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment, it is also true that the Holy Spirit brings a personal effect. For example, we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is prosecuting people in Acts chapter 2 when Paul preaches, or Peter, excuse me, preaches the gospel to them at Pentecost. And what was the personal effect that it had on some of them? What does the Bible say? They were pricked to their heart. And they said, men and brethren, what must we do? What must we do? That was the personal effect. There was a public prosecution where through the Holy Spirit, Peter lifted up the evidence of Jesus and of their guilt. And there was a personal effect. Some of them were cut to the heart. But interestingly, we go to Acts chapter 7 and we see Stephen preaching the gospel. And he likewise lifts up Jesus Christ. He likewise prosecutes them through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible equally says that they were cut to their heart. And what did they say? Men and brethren, what, what, what must we do? Scripture says they gnashed on him with their teeth. Do you see, the Holy Spirit, as a public prosecution of the world with the facts about Jesus Christ, and it has a divergent personal effect. On some, it softens and brings to repentance. On some, it hardens and sends them to damnation. And this is, again, where we come back to the divine plan and the human responsibility. Why does it cause some to soften and repent? And why does it cause some to harden and be damned? This is where we ultimately say, all the, the mixture of this divine plan and this human responsibility is not ultimately totally for ours to understand. But notice again, so he convicts the world, he reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What is he convincing the world of? We, we just read it, of sin and righteousness and of judgment. And Jesus goes on in verses 9 through 11 to tell us how he will prosecute, the spirit will prosecute the world. Should we go on? Look with me in verse 9. He will prosecute the world of sin because they believe not on me. Now let me pause there. Do you understand that? Do you read that and say, oh, I understand. He will prosecute the world of sin because they believe not on me. Let's go to the next one. Of righteousness, he will prosecute the world of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more. Do you understand that connection? between prosecuting the world of righteousness and Jesus going to his father and no one seeing him anymore? I'll confess, I think many times when I read this, I had no idea what he was talking about. Not the faintest idea. Go to the next one. He will prosecute the world of judgment, reprove the world of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Do you understand what he means by that? In fact, we might be tempted to think this is one giant non sequitur. What a non sequitur literally means in the Latin, it does not follow. We look at this and we say, 
It does not follow, Jesus. How will the Holy Spirit convince people of righteousness because you go to your Father and we don't see you? I don't get it. Okay. I want us to think about it like this, and it may help clear out our understanding. A prosecutor prosecutes people for crimes, for things that they have done, for guilt that they have incurred. And he uses evidence to do so. So let's take a person who has been, is being prosecuted for murder. What is he being prosecuted for? Murder. What is the evidence of the murder? That person was alive and now he's dead. And you had a gun in your hand. And you pulled the trigger. And now he's dead. You have committed murder. You see, there's a difference between the charge, the crime, and between the evidence that is used to support the crime. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. What he is saying is the crime that the Holy Spirit is going to prosecute the world for or the proof, the, the claim, the charge is sin. And what is the evidence of their sin? Because they believe not on me. You see, there's a charge and here's the evidence. What's the next charge? What's the next thing he's going to reprove them of? He's going to reprove them of righteousness. That's the next thing he's going to prove when it comes to the world. Righteousness. And then what's the evidence? What is the evidence that is going to be used to convict them? That Jesus has gone to his father and you see me no more. You still may not understand that, but I think we're going to get there. What's the third charge? Judgment. That judgment is coming. That there is a judge who will reprove all men. And what is the evidence that will be used to convict the world? That the prince of this world is Judge. The idea is that he already has been judged. It's not a future judgment that is the evidence. It's the judgment right now. I don't know if I've cleared it up, but I hope if we think about it in that way, I think it's going to click and we're going to understand these few verses. So secondly, let's not look just at the elements. What is being done here in this prosecution? But let's look secondly at the evidence. Remember, we talked about the evidence. What is the evidence that Jesus, that the Spirit of God is going to bring to bear so that the world is prosecuted, is charged, is reproved of sin and of righteousness and judgment? And I think this will be helpful if we step back to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, the chief office, the chief ministry of the Holy Spirit altogether. We're just going to look at a couple verses that I think are going to show you what the Holy Spirit does, and we're going to apply it to this. Go back one chapter to John chapter 15, will you? Right before we come into John 16, look with me at verse 26. Jesus says to his disciples, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father... What comes next? Read it out loud with me. He shall testify of me. Do you see that? What is the chief ministry of the Spirit? To testify of Jesus. Now go ahead to John 16. We're going to see it again here. Yes, this is speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Christian, not first to the world, but it's the same kind of idea. Notice here, if you turn the, if, uh, for me turning the page, if you notice in verse 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. There's a ministry to the believer. Why? 
because he shall not speak of himself. It doesn't mean he's not going to speak about himself. The Holy Spirit does speak about himself. It means he won't speak from himself. The words won't be coming from the Holy Spirit. They will be coming from God the Father. They will be coming from God. He is not making it up. He is not an independent speaker. He is speaking from the Trinity of God. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now look with me in verse 14. He shall glorify me. Remember what we just learned? He shall testify of me. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine. He's going to take from me, and he's going to show it unto you. You see the picture? The Holy Spirit takes the things of Jesus and shows them, reveals them to you. What does the Spirit do? He testifies of Jesus. What does he do? He glorifies Jesus. How does he testify and glorify Jesus? By taking things from Jesus and revealing them, showing them to you. As if any good teacher takes a child who is learning and they open up the book and they show them things. They make those things real to that child. Math, science, English, whatever it is, they are making it alive. Now, friends, if we would just come into this truth, we, I think, would have a new perspective on what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. He wants to make Jesus real to you. He wants to make Jesus alive to you. Do you see that? Do you understand that? When the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and when the Holy Spirit is reviving you, Jesus becomes more real to you than he was before. You see, what happens at the point of our sin? What happens so often at the point of sin is my temptation is more real to me than Jesus is. My temptation is more real to me than God is in that moment, and I give in. If Jesus were real, he were alive, I was in his presence at that moment, I would not fall into that same temptation that I did before. But because sometimes he feels dimmed to us, he does not feel in that same way as alive, as real to us, we fall into our temptation. The Holy Spirit is intending to bring Jesus alive to you and keep him like that. He makes him alive to you as you read the word of God, as you pray, as you hear the word of God preached. He is bringing the things of Jesus and showing them to you. Now you say, how does this relate to our evangelism? Do you remember in Acts chapter 1? When Jesus, when Jesus says to his disciples right before he goes into heaven, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. What's your job and my job? To be witnesses for Jesus. Your job is to be witnesses, to be testifiers for Jesus. And who is the one who empowers you to do that? The Spirit. Why the Spirit? Because he makes Jesus real to you. Because he makes him alive to you. And because by the word of God, he will make him alive to other people. What happened when you got saved? 
You got saved not just because you understood a theology about Jesus, but because Jesus became alive to you in a new way. Because being born again by the Spirit of God is bringing you alive to spiritual things. As Scripture says, And you hath he quickened, brought to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is the work of the Spirit to bring Jesus alive to us, to bring his reality directly in front of our faces. And we are to be witnesses of that reality by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's come back then to these pieces of evidence that have been given. What is the connection? Let's start with that first one, shall we? Verse 9. The Holy Spirit will reprove men of sin, and the evidence is because they believe not on me. Now, what would we say the connection is? Notice the connection of the sin that the Holy Spirit prosecutes. Notice that the evidence of sin that he brings out most fundamentally here, as Jesus lays out for us, is not just ordinary moral misconduct. It is not, oh, you told a lie last week. Now, don't get me wrong. Does the Holy Spirit internally convict our conscience with the moral law of God? Of course he does. But that's not fundamentally what Jesus is talking about here. What is the evidence of sin that he brings out? That you don't believe on Jesus. You say, why is that? Why is that the evidence that he brings? Because what is, the, again, the ministry of the Spirit? The ministry of the Spirit is to bring Jesus alive. And what happened when you realized, friend, likely in your salvation that Jesus was alive and that he was going to be your judge one day, do you know what happened to you? You said, wow, I don't believe in that Jesus, do I? I better get right with that Jesus, shouldn't I? The sin that sends people to hell is the sin of unbelief. That is the only unpardonable sin. Because it is that sin without which everyone would be saved. You may have a sin that mounts up to heaven in your moral misbehavior. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And all that sin will be forgiven. What is the one sin that damns men and women to hell? Refusing to believe. In Jesus Christ. That is why when the Holy Spirit prosecutes the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, he prosecutes them for sin, not just based on their moral misconduct, but on their failure to believe in the risen, living Christ who will be their judge one day. Do you see the connection? He convinces, he convicts them of sin because they believe not on him. Notice secondly here in verse 10. He convinces them of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more. Now, this may even be a harder for connection for us to understand. What does that mean? I want to suggest to you this. Again, what is he prosecuting the world for? Righteousness. A standard of righteousness that they don't know and they don't follow. A righteousness that they don't possess. That's what he's convincing them of. And the evidence that he is using is that Jesus has ascended to his father and they see him no more. They see him no more. You say, why does that matter? 
want you to think for a moment about Jesus as he was seen by the high priests and the people who crucified him. They saw him as an imposter. They saw him as a liar. They strung him up on a cross as a crook, surrounded by two thieves, stripped entirely naked, beaten, bloodied, bruised. What was the snapshot that mankind got of Jesus Christ in the flesh? That criminal, false teacher, accused and cursed of God because everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, the Old Testament law says. What does it mean that Jesus is ascended up to heaven and we see him no more? Friends, there's an empty tomb. We see him no more. He has ascended up on high. What was the verdict? What was the divine verdict? Not guilty. What was the human verdict? Guilty, criminal, convict, a crook, imposter. What was the divine verdict? Son of God. On what proof? Because God raised him from the dead. Not only that, God brought him up, ascended high above all things, and now he is Lord. Do you know what happens when the Holy Spirit convinces people that Jesus has been risen from the dead and ascended up to the right hand of God and we see him no more? He convinces them that that was God's stamp of approval on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's God's stamp of approval that Jesus was who he said he was. And the fact that the world sees an empty tomb, that there is an empty tomb brought about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that God has a standard of righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. Turn over with me. I just want to show you how this it manifested itself in the way the early church preached. To Acts chapter 3, will you? Acts chapter 3. Peter is speaking boldly as he, t as he tended to do right after this man was healed that was lame. Verse 12, Peter says to the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. Do you see that? He has exalted him, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Your verdict was guilty. Your verdict was unrighteous. But ye denied the Holy One and the just. Who's he saying? What's God's verdict? Holy, just, righteous. You denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. You see what he's saying? Jesus has, has been stamped with God's approval by being raised up from the dead and by being ascended to be Lord and Christ and the ultimate judge. So again, why and how does the Holy Spirit convince and prosecute the world of sin? By elevating Jesus Christ and saying, you do not believe in him. That is the fundamental fatal sin. How does the Spirit of God prosecute the world, convince them of righteousness? 
by exalting Jesus, the evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead, has ascended up into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, is God's stamp of approval that he was the Christ. He is God's source of righteousness for all who believe. Now notice the last one. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. This might be the hardest one yet. Do you understand that connection? Why does the spirit prosecute people for judgment by the fact that this prince of this world is judged? I'll tell you, Bible expositors that I respect think that Jesus is not talking about the evidence that the Holy Spirit uses. They think here he's talking about the reason that allows people to be convinced of judgment. They say the reason that people, that the Holy Spirit convinces people of, 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 of judgment is because the prince of this world has been judged and his influence has been diminished by the Holy Spirit. And that's what allows people's eyes to be opened to judgment. I respect that. That's a completely credible, good faith, colorable way to interpret this passage. But I don't think that's actually what it is. It would be entirely different from the last two that we've talked about in which the Holy Spirit uses this as evidence for the prosecution. So if we were going to say this also is evidence of the prosecution, what is the evidence? What is the connection between our judgment, the judgment of the world one day, and the fact, the evidence that the prince of this world is being judged? I know we're being detailed here. But I'm just encouraging you, put your thinking caps on just for a little bit longer. I think we'll be helped here. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? Colossians 2 tells us, he spoiled principalities and powers and he made a show of them openly, publicly. What happened on the cross was that the prince of this world was judged forever. Was his influence cast out entirely in this world? No, he is still the prince of this world. Was decisive judgment entered against him? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The accuser of our brethren, in that sense, has been decisively judged by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You remember in John chapter 12, only a few chapters back, that voice from heaven thunders talking about the glorifying of God's name in Jesus. And Jesus says these words. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying that by the work of the Holy Spirit, your life and my life and our life in this world will be evidence that the, that the prince of this world has been defeated. I believe that what Jesus has in mind here is the same thing that he that was testified in the book of Luke, for example, when they went everywhere preaching the word, maybe Mark 16, they go everywhere preaching the word and the word was confirmed with signs following. What happened when, when, when the early church went preaching and miracles were done? 
Blind people received sight. Demons were cast out of people. People were gloriously saved who had been given over to witchcraft and a variety of other things. What evidence was it? There's a greater power in this world. The Holy Spirit was giving evidence to the fact that God was at work and the prince of this world, the devil, had already been brought into judgment. Now you say, what about for our world today? Friends, do you know you can give evidence in your life today by the Holy Spirit that the devil has been judged? How? By living your life in such a way that only the, the unsaved can only chalk up to a divine power in your life. To have a kind of love that only God can bring about in your life. So that when people say, see it, they say, I don't love people like that. They must have something I don't. The only thing, the evidence of seeing people come into our doors and be saved gloriously from sin such that the Holy Spirit holds it up and says, the devil is being judged in this world. And by the way, that judgment is coming for you too unless you align with Jesus of, of Nazareth. That judgment, the same way in which judgment is being exercised against the forces of evil in our world today by God's Spirit working in the life of Christians, that is evidence. If that judgment is falling on the wickedness and the evil in our midst, it's evidence that one day that judgment will fall upon all of us. That's the best way that I understand it. You may find another way to, to, to be more persuasive. But ultimately, let's recognize what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is testifying of Jesus, glorifying Jesus, enabling us to be witnesses for Jesus, to Jesus, that Jesus is real, he is alive, and in the evidence of a resurrected and ascended Savior, there is a public prosecution of the entire world of sin because they don't believe on that resurrected, ascended Savior, of righteousness because that resurrection and ascension is the proof of the righteousness of God available in him and of the ultimate judgment of all who will reject him because that judgment is already being seen in the world today. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit brings about to do his work. So let, he, let me ask, finally, and thirdly, this example for us. What does this mean? If this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world, what effect should this have on the way you give the gospel? On your evangelism? This is the first thing and the most important thing. Your evangelism must be Christ-focused. It must be. If the fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus in your life and bring him to life, bring him to reality, bring him to the point where you know him and you love him and you follow him, how much more when you tell the world about the gospel do you need to center on the person of Jesus Christ? Do you remember what we've been coming to through this entire series? Do not proclaim the gospel just as a set of ideas, as a little area of theology. I just need to give you the right theology here. Present the gospel as a living person who people must repent of and must believe toward. Present him as someone who has been resurrected from the dead and who one day will be their judge. Present a living Jesus 
and make him at the core of everything that you proclaim. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. That's his work in this world. It is to testify of Jesus. Do you know this was the early church? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says when he came to Corinth, he said, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What was their preaching? Entirely Christ-centered, entirely Christ-focused. It was presented as the ministry of Christ. Now, why do I start here? I start here because I have seen in um, taught in some places an idea that we really need, the first thing we need to do when we talk to people is really bring them under moral guilt. And oftentimes it's presented, you may have heard through Ray Comfort's ministry or others, that you really need to bring the Ten Commandments to bear on people's consciences. And only when you bring the Ten Commandments to prove to people the moral law of God, then they will be ready to hear the gospel. I am not disputing that there is an essential aspect of the moral law of God, that God brings that to our consciences. I'm reminded of Felix in Acts chapter 24. You remember when Paul gave the gospel to him, he reasoned with him of sin and of, of temperance and of judgment, I'm sorry, of righteousness and temperance or self-control and judgment. I don't doubt that Paul was bringing to his mind the moral law of God and Felix didn't like it. He trembled. But here's my only caution. Do you know I don't find one place in our entire New Testament, anywhere in the book of Acts, where the people who were proclaiming the gospel brought up the Ten Commandments and used them in public proclamation of the gospel? I don't find one place where that happened. I don't find one place anywhere in the book of Acts where we are taken back to the law to say you're guilty. I, I, I encourage you, be Bereans, read all the preaching in the gospel in the book of Acts this week and come back and tell me if you see it differently. But I'll tell you, I don't see it. What the early church did, and you can start in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, to the Jews. You can look at Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the Athenians, people like ours today, who didn't know anything about the moral law of God, or the, or the Ten Commandments, you might say. They had no time for this backwards Jewish um, uh, uh, sense of morality. They didn't start there. What did they say? Jesus Christ is alive. You killed him. He's risen from the dead. He's coming back one day to be your judge. You need to repent. You need to get right with him. So I just want to encourage you. Don't think that there has to be immediately some kind of form of going back to, to the Ten Commandments or something along those lines. Let me just give you an example. You talk to someone, as you see some of these preachers do on college campuses, who go and decide that their method of giving the gospel is going to call people names, is going to call them and say, you are a fornicator. And the person responds to them and says, fornication isn't bad. And then you say, well, look at the Bible, look at the Old Testament, look at, look at God's moral law. And they say, well, I don't, I don't have anything to believe in your Bible. Where do you go then? What happens, like Paul did at Athens, when he said there is a God up in heaven, he created the world and he sent his son Jesus to call you to repentance and he gave you assurance in that he raised him from the dead. 
What does that person say then? When they are confronted, as you will bring to them, with the idea that Jesus is alive. I was talking to my brother-in-law about this. He had been involved in a debate, if you will, with a, with a person, and they were debating the origins of the world. Did we evolve? Was, were, were, was there creation? And they were really debating of these origins. And my advice to my brother-in-law says, you should ask him what he thinks about the fact that Jesus is alive. That's what you're, where you should start with him. Start with him and say, you know what, there's compelling evidence that Jesus is alive, and I know he's alive. And start there. Why? Because that man likely has no time for what the, the scripture's interpretation of the moral law of God. If he's gloriously saved, will he? Yeah. But I see in the Bible this very clear elevation of Jesus Christ consistent with the work of the Holy Spirit. But while I say that your gospel must be Christ-focused, let me also hasten to add that your gospel must include sin, righteousness, and judgment. You notice that? Your sin and righteousness and judgment that comes across in this message is the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, we, we don't have time to go through it together. But if you get a chance, go look at Acts chapter 2 and read Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. When you get a chance, read Acts 17 and see Paul's sermon to these postmodern Athenians, if you will. It includes sin, righteousness, and judgment. In fact, I think one of, the, one of the most basic presentations, the simplest presentations recorded for us in all the gospel is in Acts 16 when Paul says to that Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Do you know there's sin, righteousness, and judgment in that? There's sin because it elevates Jesus Christ and says you need to believe on him. That is your ultimate problem. What must I do to be saved? Believe on him. That's your problem. There has righteousness there. Why? Because he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who God has stamped with his approval as the only one in whom righteousness is found. And there's judgment because he says, and thou shalt be saved. Saved from what? Saved from judgment. Saved for eternity. Make sure your gospel contains sin, righteousness, and judgment because that is the work that the Holy Spirit is prosecuting in the world. You say, what does that look like? That's what we're going to get into in future weeks, God willing, to see from the Bible how Scripture itself presents these things to us. But remember, your gospel must elevate Christ. It cannot be this kind of wishy-washy, come accept Jesus and live this gloriously wonderful life for eternity. It must include sin, righteousness, and judgment. But here's the ultimate encouragement, and as we close, here's the ultimate encouragement. You're not the prosecutor, and I'm not either. The glorious truth of the fact that we have a divine prosecutor in the world who will convict, who will reprove, who will convince men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment is that that's his job. It's his job to do that. What's your job? Tell the truth. Be a witness to Jesus. Tell people that he's alive, that he's, been ascend he's ascended up to heaven. He's coming back one day. He's going to be the judge of everyone that everyone needs to repent and believe if they're going to have their sins forgiven. Just tell them the truth. Elevate Christ in how you present the gospel to the world. Include sin and righteousness and judgment. 
And then what happened? What happens do we see throughout the book of Acts? You remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul gives this gospel message at Athens. Some of them mocked. Some of them will mock at you too. Some of them said, we'll hear you again. Some of them will say that to you. Man, that's interesting. We'll hear you again on that. But some believed. And some clave to them. Some stuck to them like glue. And when you are allowing the Holy Spirit to be the prosecutor, to convince and to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, you'll see the same thing. Some will be convinced and convicted and come to faith. Some will be hardened and deny to damnation. But ultimately, you leave that up to the prosecutor. Friends, this precise knowledge that we have here from the word of God, I hope, will be a real encouragement and challenge to you in how you present the gospel even this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit to testify of Christ, to glorify Christ, to take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. Oh, Father, I pray for those today for whom Jesus needs to become alive in a greater way. Perhaps the conviction on some hearts tonight is that the Holy Spirit needs to do a reviving work. He needs to take the things of Jesus and reveal them in a fresh way to our perspective. Father, would you do that work? Would you bring repentance where there needs to be repentance? Where would, you need, would you bring revival where there needs to be reviving? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes you would open our hearts. Would you empower us to be your witnesses, the witnesses of Jesus Christ? Thank you for the gift of this divine prosecutor that is convincing the world now of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let's pause for a moment. However, God is speaking to you by his spirit. Would you listen? He shall reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Father, thank you for that work. May we be your witnesses, even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.